Captain Mel Lockhart was the second man sent to the moon. Just like the man before him, he is affected by something unknown. Without oxygen for over 10 minutes, he's still able to speak. He begs for ground control to push the red destruct button. They do. Captain Lockhart and his space capsule are destroyed. But not all of the astronauts. His hand and arm fall to a beach in California. A young high school student and a Swedish girlfriend come across the arm one evening, and it has some sort of strange power over the young man. A deadly power. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They had 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. Hello there. My name is Jeff Kelly, and welcome to the 37th episode of Celluloid Days, the podcast of film and film history. On this episode, I'm going to talk about the 1963 Herbert L. Strachs American science fiction horror film, The Crawling Hand. The title, however, is a bit deceiving as the titular character is more of a hand and an arm. And when I think about it, it must be hard for the hand to drag around that forearm wherever it goes, but you know, whatever. The poster for The Crawling Hand states, Jolting Space Shocker, Astronaut Ordered Blow-Up, terrifying menace from the moon. And on the poster, there's a picture of a naked, pretty young woman with her back to the camera. Underneath it, it states, she revealed her body, but not her secret. You know, I've seen The Crawling Hand many times, and well, maybe I'm missing it, but as far as I know, she never revealed her body, and she had no secrets. But that's marketing for you. The Crawling Hand is from 1963, written by Bill Idelson and Herbert L. Schrock. It's based on an original story by Idelson, Malcolm Young, and Joseph Cranston. And according to IMDb Trivia, Joseph Cranston is the father of actor Brian Cranston, the star of Malcolm in the Middle and Breaking Bad. The film was directed by Herbert L. Strock who was also the director of such classics as I Was a Teenage Frankenstein from 1957, How to Make a Monster from 1958, and Rider on a Dead Horse from 1962. He also did a lot of television work. The film stars Rod Lauren as Paul Lawrence. Paul had a very limited acting career with a bunch of television work between 1960 and 1966. He also had a very tragic life. He had been a singer who, in 1960, had the hit song, If I Had a Girl. All my love, all my heart I would give to her. All my life it went to number 31 on the Billboard's Hot 100, and he performed it twice on the Ed Sullivan Show. Later, he would move to the Philippines, where he married a leading Filipino film actress. After she turned up dead, stabbed to death, Rod came back to the USA and successfully fought extradition back to the Philippines to avoid a trial for murder. On July 11, 2007, Lauren committed suicide by jumping off a second-floor balcony. So I guess if they want to do a Crawling Hand 2, they're going to have to look for somebody else. 
The NASA men, I mean, well, space operations men, are played by Peter Breck and Kent Taylor, both of which had long acting careers in both television and film. In the film, both men are pretty much buffoons. I mean, if they were really in charge of the United States space program, I don't think humans would have ever left the Earth. A couple notable actors in the film are Alan Hale Jr. as Sheriff Townsend, who of course was the skipper on Gilligan's Island. And then there's Allison Hayes. You might remember Allison from such films as The Hypnotic Eye, The Unearthly, and Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. In my opinion, there just wasn't enough of her in the film. She is, however, in more of the film than what was shown on Mystery Science Theater 3000. Sid Saylor plays the soda shop owner, the one who says, Didn't I tell you? Eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow you die. <laughs> he was an American comic actor and movie cowboy sidekick who appeared in 395 films and television series between 1926 and 1962. Unfortunately, he died before this film was released. One actor who intrigued me was Siri Steffens, who played Marta, the Swedish exchange student girlfriend. Claude, what does it mean I'm stacked and you're not with it? She was a gorgeous blonde. Okay, she was never in danger of winning any acting contests, but I thought she did all right in the film. The thing is, she wasn't Swedish, nor was she American. She was from Iceland. She had dark blonde hair, blue eyes, was five feet four and a half inches tall, weighed a hundred pounds, and her measurements were 34.5 by 21 by 34. You can understand why she was cast. She was born on May 19, 1938, in her hometown of Reykjavik, Iceland. Her real name is something that, well, I won't bother to pronounce. When she was seven, her family moved to Sweden, where they lived until she was 16. Returning from Iceland, she graduated from grade school in 1958. Then she attended the University of Iceland, taking philosophy, French, and Swedish. In fact, she spoke at least five languages, English, Swedish, German, French, and Danish. From what I've read, she was a very intelligent person. She was a singer in various bands around Iceland when she entered the Miss Iceland contest in 1960. Apparently, she didn't take it too seriously, but won anyway. This led to the Miss International pageant in Long Beach, California. During the contest, she was named Miss Photogenic by the press photographers, according to one paper at the time. After being told to smile by the photographers, she told them, why don't you fellas ever smile? It was never difficult for me to pose, she said. I haven't had a lesson in my life, but I love it, and I've been posing since I was six years old. And she also said, I'd love to be a doctor, but it takes so long, at least eight years, and then I'll be in my 30s. That's why so few girls study medicine or law in Iceland. Her plan was to be a teacher, but when the contest was over and she finished third place, she decided to stay in the U.S. and try to make it as an actor. She Americanized her name to Sari Steffens. She first appeared on a TV series called Michael Shane, which starred Brian Dennings. She played a beauty contestant in an episode called Death Selects a Winner. She had no lines, and her appearance was pretty quick. 
Her first real acting was in 1962 in the Universal film Hitler with Richard Basehart, who played the title character. Why can't you make appointments like any normal person? She played Anna, and even had her name in the opening credits. This led to three episodes of the Beverly Hillbillies in 1962 in which she played Mrs. Drysdale's maid Marie. Well, there was a knock. I opened the door, and Jethro just swept me up into his big strong arms, held me tight, and wouldn't let me go. And from there, she got the part in The Crawling Hand. The director of the film, Herbert L. Strock, said about Siri in an interview by B-film historian Tom Weaver, We had Miss Ireland, Sari Steffens, in the lead. She wasn't much of an actress, but she was a doll to look at. We had a nude scene to do in which Sari Steffens didn't want to do. She would only do it if I put body makeup on her. She trusted me implicitly because I'm a prude, I guess. We shot the scene, but never used it. Now, first thing, Herb, you confused Ireland and Iceland, but, you know, whatever. According to IMDb, the nude scene was used for the foreign markets, but I've never seen it. Anyway, it wasn't long before Siri decided she had enough with acting and went back to Iceland to fulfill her dreams of being a teacher. She spent the rest of her life in Iceland and died on February 1st, 2020, at the age of 81. Now, The Crawling Hand is the story of an astronaut who was returning home from the moon. After a long period of silence, he finally begins to send strange radio communications. He's being affected by something evil and orders the spaceship to be destroyed. No, no! Something makes my arm move. Makes me do things. Kill. Kill! Doc, we've got to help I'm 200,000 feet. Push the red. Something in me. Push the red. Why do you want us to push it? You can push it if you want to. Won't let me. I can't move my arm. Kill. Kill. Later, a young high school student, Paul, is on the beach with his Swedish girlfriend, Marta, and they find the astronaut's arm and hand. You gonna stay here? Well, why should I do that? So I can marry you, stupid. Marry me? Oh, you! take me away, please. Sure, baby, sure. For some reason, the hand has a power over him. Marta is horrified by the whole thing, and they both leave, but Paul returns that night to get the arm. Once in the house, the crawling hand begins to crawl around and kill. It really only kills one person, Paul's landlord, Mrs. Hodgkiss. But that isn't all. Paul begins to do a Jekyll and Hyde type thing, every now and again turning into a zombie-ish type creature. And as the creature, Paul attempts to strangle a few people, but never succeeds in what he's doing. So that's your basic setup, and it really doesn't make much sense. How could a hand without a body choke someone? I mean, I've never choked anyone, but I would guess it takes some leverage. I mean, it would take the strength of your whole body. I think a severed arm and hand just couldn't do it alone. Am I overthinking it? Probably. I keep telling myself, suspension of disbelief, suspension of disbelief. I can't explain it, but, but I, I'm all mixed up, and, and there's something terrible that's happened to me, and I... I, I, and I 
There's only one person that I could have relied on in this world, and I almost killed him a few minutes ago. What do you mean? Never mind. It would take too long to explain. I don't have the time. I'm... There are times when I'm all right, and then I'm not, and then I'm... And then when I'm myself, and I'm not, and the periods when I'm myself are getting shorter and shorter to... Add... Do you understand? No. Well, then don't try. According to director Herbert L. Strach, producer Joseph F. Robertson brought him a script, a science fiction horror film, and asked him to read it. He thought it was awful, so instead, Strach gave him the script for The Crawling Hand that he had written with some friends. He told Robertson, Let me show you how it should be written. Now, Robertson knew of a man who was willing to put up $100,000 to make the film. The question I have is if they both liked the script for The Crawling Hand, could you imagine what the other script was like? They shot it for just under $100,000, all on location. No sets. The computer lab scenes were filmed at USC's Computer Lab Division. As for the lead actor Paul, Strzok said, I feel that Paul was a one-dimensional actor with a one-octave range. I must agree, he was very boring as an actor. But then I asked the question, well, then why did you cast him? The film is about what you'd expect from a 1950s, 60s, low-budget sci-fi horror film. I mean, you're going to have some fun with its ridiculousness. It's great cheesy fun. The only scene I thought that really slowed down the film, however, was the landlady's death. It just goes on and on. She gets out of bed, there are a few fake scares, she gets back into her bed, they trick you with her own hand, but then she gets back out of bed, has a drink, gets back in bed, and then slowly, finally, and this is a spoiler, gets choked to death by the crawling hand. Now like a lot of MST3K films, this film was edited for time. I'll get into it a bit later, but if they had to cut a scene from the film, they could have shortened this one a bit. Now there are a couple of questions that need to be answered, like why does Paul have an interest in owning this hand? Does the hand have special powers? And why does Paul or Marta not feel the need to call anybody about finding a severed arm on the beach? And then, after the landlady's death, Paul attempts to call Dr. Max Weisberg, one of the space operations men from the beginning of the film. How does he know about Dr. Max Weisberg? Is it the hand that's telling him this stuff? And why are the two men from the space agency keeping the death of the astronaut a secret? There's a scene in which the fingerprints of the crawling hand are determined to be that of the astronaut, and when they are asked where is he, they lie about it. I mean, the press knew they sent a man to the moon. Wouldn't they be a little curious, I ask? When Mydell calls, you can gain time by simply stating that Lockhart had no authorization to be in California, and at the present time, you have the slightest idea where he is. An absolutely true statement, one which you can't possibly be criticized for. Steve and I could fly to Palms and investigate this uh, ghost story. May hold up the project a couple of days, practically nothing to lose. And why does Pop not allow dancing at his diner? And why does Mrs. Hodgkiss breathe and blink once she's dead? Those shots are like two seconds long. You'd think she could hold motionless for that long. And do the ambulance drivers who go pick up the dead body always look in the homeowner's fridge for beer? 
Boy, I sure could use a beer. Who couldn't? But we can't stop now. I bet there's some in the kitchen. Not me. Not here. Not even for a nice, cool beer? Listen, whoever got hers probably hundreds of miles away by now. Just think of that long, tall, foamy brew. Oh, you could talk a snake out of his skin. Okay, let's take a look. With my luck, she won't even have any. Dames like her always keep beer around. I told you there'd be beer in the refrigerator. And why are they using an ambulance to pick up a dead body? I don't know, so many questions. A scene that made me laugh is where Paul is confined to his house and Marta sneaks in to see him. The actor Rod Lauren does his best James Dean yelling, Get out! And then the policeman tells him to go to his room. Get out. Why are you staying here? It's no good. You can come to our house. Marta, please. Marta, what are you doing here? Harrison, get her out of this house. Just get her out. You just get back to your room. And then there's this whole scene about a smart rat named Elmer who needs to be locked up. I didn't get that. Though a few times in the film, we get to enjoy the Revington song, The Bird is the Word. One thing I really enjoy in films like this is the bizarre scientific explanations. What makes life? A certain particular combination of molecules, or carbon, or silicons, or nitrogen, or any number of these things. A certain temperature. Mix well. Call it what you will. But this mass, swirling together in tiny orbits, fuses these things into a precise energy relationship which we call life. Ah, now, wait a minute. What you're saying is that uh, in space, life might mutate or even fully evolve in a matter of hours or even minutes. And in the end, and this is a spoiler, Paul gets cured of the hand's mental hold over him because the arm gets nibbled on by cats. Really, cats. Is that the best ending the writers could come up with? And when I think about it, Paul being a zombie-ish Jekyll and Hyde thing might have been enough, so why do they have the hand? Well, one, it makes a good name for a film... But wouldn't the idea of Paul doing the killing be more scarier and dramatic? But then I thought about it. Even though Paul turns into a zombie and chokes people, the actual killing is done by the dead astronaut's arm. Why? Because then you can have a happy ending. Unlike other teenage horror films like I Was a Teenage Werewolf, in which the protagonist has to die at the end. Of course, this film ends with a little twist. What harm will it do to take a look? I've got the key. It might be dangerous. <laughs> what do you think, it's alive? You don't see any holes in the box? You think it'll bite you or something? You're always talking me into doing something I don't want to do. Have I ever steered you wrong? it didn't end with a question mark like I would have expected. And I want to remind you that Herbert L. Strock rejected another script in favor of this one. The music in this film is your typical horror film music. Nothing really stands out about it, but it does work.
But all in all, I enjoy this type of film, even without the MS3K treatment. Oh wait, hear that? That means it's time to talk about the Rift version. The Crawling Hand was shot during the first season of Mystery Science Theater 3000. I guess the second season if you count the KTMA shows, but who does? The date was December 16, 1989. This is back when J. Elvis Weinstein, who was then known as Josh, was playing Tom Servo and Dr. Lawrence Earhart. The show has an odd opening. It begins with Joel without the bots. In fact, the bots don't appear until the film starts, waiting in the theater as Joel arrives. After the opening, Joel greets the viewers in a robe with a cup of coffee. He explains his situation. People of Earth, my name is Joel, and I'm marooned in outer space. Um, I'm the subject of a bizarre movie-watching experiment, and now I guess uh, so are you. Uh, I'm expecting a call any second now from the two evil scientists who shot me into space for no good reason at all. Joel's invention was a safety circular saw in which he uses and pretends to cut off his own fingers. The Mads create a limb lengthener. Dr. Forrester stretching Earhart's arm like Reed Richards of the Fantastic Four. The whole opening is a bit awkward as they hadn't really developed the characters yet. Trace Bellew seems particularly stiff. It was also when they were experimenting with ways to make the silhouettes during the film stand out from the black and white prints. In this case, they tinted themselves green. And the jokes in the first season are a lot slower paced than later seasons, as they were still finding their way. But you know, I sort of like it like that. I can enjoy the film and enjoy Crow, Tom, and Joel as well. And because this film is about a hand, expect a lot of hand puns and jokes. And because Ellen Hale Jr. is in the film, expect a lot of Gilligan's Island-related jokes. During the opening title, Crow says, Hey, Joel, did they do these titles on a typewriter? Joel responds with, No, uh, that's the uh, Helvetica constellation we're looking at. Oh. Stellar. Now, as a production artist who helps design packaging, I must say, Joel, that that font hardly looks like Helvetica. It's more like Cooper Standard. The fact that the font has serifs should be a clue that it's not even close to Helvetica. <laughs> okay, that's just me. I get it. It's a joke. And as far as the jokes go, they're good but not great in this first segment. In fact, in the whole episode. Well, I do like it when the actor is begging to be blown up, doing a little scenery chewing. Crow says, I think he's taken acting lessons from William Shatner. This is Major Tom Duke Ground Control. Now at the first segment break, a bit is cut off from the actual film as the grandfather says goodbye to Donna and Paul and they drive off to the beach. Just about 30 seconds or so. No biggie. Even the host segments in this episode seem to be underwritten. The first begins with Crow bowling and Tom Servo describing the action, like a TV announcer. That leads to the bots rebelling against their maker when Joel wants to play Murder Ball. I have no idea what Murder Ball is, but it kind of makes Joel look like a bit of a jerk. Now later in the film, there's a whole scene with Allison Hayes and Peter Breck 
that is cut as well as the finger identification bit, about four minutes. The scene they cut is not really important, but they cut out Allison Hayes, and that's just wrong. But that's about it for the trimming of this film. But then again, couldn't they have cut a little of that landlady's death scene rather than Allison Hayes? But whatever, best brains. <laughs> During the second film segment, we get to see Sherry in a bikini. What do I have to do? Say it in Swedish? How do you say moon in Swedish? Hubba hubba. As soon as Marta and Paul are in their bathing suits, Crow and Tom go into a series of fish puns. <laughs> Sorry. Stop it. You're giving me a haddock. Oh, oh, oh. you're a pain in the bass. You have no soul. Oh. And then when they find the hand, of course, there are a lot of hand puns. Yeah. You gotta hand it to him. Went out on a limb with that one. Oh. It's a good thing he brought that freezer wrap along. I don't think it's freezer wrap. I think it's a handbag. Oh. <laughs> one joke you might find as bad taste is when they see the crawling hand. I recognize him. He used to be with Death Leopard. You old folks will get that. I like when Joel says, You know things are bad when you keep a liquor cabinet in your bedroom. Shortly before the second film segment ends with the landlady being choked, Crow says, No, I think she's doing Mrs. Captain Kirk. Got to find push button. Must lay down. That leads to the next break in which all three begin acting like they are being choked by a hand, all doing their best William Shatner impressions. Again, the break is very short. Now, during the film, I noticed there are long breaks between jokes. I mean, very long. Like I said, the pace during this first season was very slow. At a couple points during the film, Joel does his voice on the other side of the phone bit. Hello? I'd like to call Dr. Max Weitzberg. Weitzberg, how did you spell it? Washington, D.C. One of the best riffs comes when Paul wakes in the back of the ambulance with the dead landlady. I slept with that? Wow, he really must have had his beer goggles on. And of course, like I said, a lot of Gilligan's Island jokes. It's, it's from a place called Uncharted Desert Isle. Huh. Dear Skipper, why haven't you sent help? Signed, The Castaways. The next host segment has Joel trying to convince the bots that a hand can be dangerous. It ends with Crow being attacked by a huge hand. And once they get back to the film, they explain that the Hand was just gypsy in a costume. And as soon as the film starts, there's another Gilligan's Island joke. Another joke I really like is after Paul attempts to strangle his girlfriend. Huh? He's the least successful strangler in the movies. He runs around the countryside giving people Dutch rubs. This is a pretty good episode, but like I said, a very few of the jokes are laugh out loud type jokes. It wasn't until season two where the riffing crew really began finding their way. Now going back to the film itself, I couldn't find any reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. But there were a few on IMDb, but I'm not going to read any of them. But I'm going to read the headlines that people wrote. About what you'd expect from a crawling hand film. Enjoyable, cruddy, 
Grade Z Sci-Fi Horror Schlockfest. Who said that Ed Wood was the worst director of all time? The cheesiest. Absolutely ridiculous, and I mean that in the best possible way. Why did he want the hand in the first place? Remarkably mediocre. The Crawling Ham. And the last one, only endurable with the MST 3K commentary. Now, I was going through old newspapers from 1963, wondering if I could find a review. And I didn't, but I found this instead. It's from November 18, 1963, in the Letters to the Editor column in the Victoria Advocate from Texas. It read, This morning, what should be advertised but the crawling hand? A nude picture with the caption, she revealed her body but not her secret. Do we as parents just sit still and let this kind of thing appear in our newspapers and movie screens? It seems it did no good to appeal to the theater manager. But what can we do? One thing, don't go see them. Some parents in Houston did something in the form of a parents' league in that direction. It is something I think we could all think about. It is my understanding that in the near future we will be hearing a lot more about the parents' league here in Victoria. So let's all support it when we do. Miss Sandra Brainies. Life is full of surprises. Ladies and gentlemen, the terrible elephant man. At first, you will want to turn away from him. Then, you may find him a silent, unresisting target for your ridicule. Stand up. Stand up. Turn around. Mister, why is your head so big, mister? <laughs> but if you come to know him... Have you always been the way you are now? You will begin to see beyond the perversion of his form. Are you in any pain? Are your parents still alive? Your father? Your mother? And discover the beauty in the beast. And perhaps for the first time you will understand the true meaning of courage and human dignity. I am not an animal. I am a human being. A little bit before I go. Now you might watch this film, even without the MST3K riffing, and laugh and think, who could make such trash? But you know, Oliver Stone made a film in 1981 called The Hand, starring Michael Caine that was just, or even more, ridiculous. I kid you not, it's a very bizarre film. There's a scene where Michael Caine gets his hand chopped off by a passing car, and it's supposed to be dramatic, but it's actually pretty funny. Anyway, so next week I'm going to do something a bit different. I'm going to start a new series of episodes called What's Wrong With This Picture? It'll be a monthly thing. In it, I will talk about films based on true stories, and I will tell you what's right and what's wrong with them. The first film I'm going to look at is David Lynch's 1980 film, The Elephant Man. Yes, it's a wonderful film, beautifully shot, beautifully acted, but, and I hope this doesn't spoil it for anybody, it's a work of mostly fiction. I hope you'll join me. Now listen up, I have a Facebook page, and I'd love to read your comments on it. It's called Celluloid Days. Please join us. 
I have a Twitter account. It's at celluloid underscore days. I'm still holding at 32 followers. I need some more. And I'm always looking for film suggestions. The more strange and unusual, the better. The email address for the show is daysofcelluloid, all one word, at gmail.com. Feel free to email me for any reason. Come on, just say hi. I could use a friendly greeting. And if you could leave me a review at wherever you stream this podcast, I'd be forever grateful. I'd like to thank you for listening. Take care, and I'll be back next Monday with the Elephant Man. Bye-bye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They had 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. You know it's multi-best. Your stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. The high court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing.